it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, May the 2nd, 2022, a brand new month and a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have each and every one of you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, which is noon to 3 Pacific Time. I'm out here on the West Coast still in Camarillo, California today at the West Coast headquarters of Salem Media Group, which is the parent company of townhall.com, where I work. Also a great radio company in its own right, and it's awesome to be here seeing some folks. I'll talk about that a little bit later on today's show, but I'm grateful to have this opportunity to broadcast from their studios here. And just the West Coast, man, it's a whole different vibe. I like visiting. I'll say that. Not sure I could live out here. More reflections on the home stretch in our final hour here today. Quick programming note before we get any further. On the TV side, I'll be joining Shannon Bream tonight. At least that's on the schedule. Fox News at night, just after midnight Eastern Time, which is 9 p.m. or so here in the West. So tune in tonight, Fox News Channel, late night, or you can set your DVRs. That's Shannon Bream and Fox News at night. Looking forward to that. Here on the radio side, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. It's your one-stop shop for everything that you need, including the many ways to listen live between the aforementioned hours or to catch our podcast, which has just been exploding in growth. We're very, very grateful to all of you for helping us grow. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcasts, you've got options, and it's the entire show on demand for free every day. But if you're missing it live, you're missing a lot with breaking news and the like. So I just want to put the various options at the buffet in front of you, and you can consume the program however you like. And let's keep growing together. Please tell your friends and your family, so on and so forth. And I'm sort of like, maybe you can like whisper to a few friends who might be dabbling in free thought. Right? They might be kind of on the left, but maybe not so much anymore. They're not sure if they can, like, you know, dive into Ben Shapiro just yet. I could be like a gateway drug. You can think of it that way. I've, I don't think I've ever put, I don't know if we should brand the show that way. Your gateway drug into right thinking. We can workshop that. Maybe we can uh, do some focus groups on that, see if that's a slogan that works well for us. It's just a thought, just brainstorming to start off the new week. Here's the lineup. As we begin the show today, coming up later this hour, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor, he will bring us the very latest out of Ukraine. There is some good news that our colleague Jennifer Griffin at Fox News was just reporting a few hours ago. We will get General Kellogg's reaction to that. In our middle hour, Britt Hume will be here, senior political analyst at Fox News. You know him very well. And I want to talk to him, among other things about a new poll that came out over the weekend from NPR and PBS. And you better believe the people who had to report on their own poll 
at those two media entities must have really been gritting their teeth, maybe sitting there at their laptop, just tapping away, tears rolling down their cheeks as they relay what the American people are thinking and what the American electorate is at least for now poised and preparing to do to the Democratic Party in November. We'll get into those details and get reaction from Britt Hume. And then Howie Kurtz of Media Buzz will be here on the White House Correspondents' Dinner, on the Twitter stuff and Elon Musk, on the Disinformation Board slash Ministry of Truth. We've got a lot of different topics to squeeze in with Howie. That will be in our final hour, the happy hour, here on the show today. As we begin the show, since we're in California, I figured that I would start on a topic that I think is going to be probably a top three, maybe top five at the least, probably top three, if I had to guess, issue for American voters, which is crime. Crime and law and order, right? So you'll have the economy and inflation at the very top. I think immigration will be moving up the depth chart as this border crisis gets worse and worse. I think crime and law and order and lawlessness is probably right there somewhere around number three, maybe four. And one of the areas in the country, one of the states in the union, where the crime problem has been pronounced and sort of the widespread lawlessness has gotten a lot of attention is here in California. So we are just a few weeks away from a recall election up in San Francisco. So you just drive up the coast. It's a beautiful drive from L.A. to San Francisco. In San Francisco, the district attorney elected by the people of that city is, in my estimation, more or less pro-criminal. And he has telegraphed with his official policy that many, many crimes in San Francisco just won't be prosecuted. And if you go and shoplift a bunch of stuff and it comes in under a certain dollar amount, roughly what, eight or $800 or $900, the threshold for punishment will be far lower. And guess what? People are responding to those prompts from those incentives, they are seeing what those incentives are, and they are adjusting their behavior by doing crimes that they figure they'll get away with. And in many cases, that's exactly what's happening. So the people of San Francisco, at least a lot of them, have had enough. They went through all the rigmarole and jumped through all the hoops to get this recall election on the ballot. It's June the 7th. And I think there's a pretty good chance that Chesa Boudin who is the progeny of literal domestic terrorists, by the way. It's uh, never a great decision, I would say, to put that type of person, unless they're reformed and take a very different view of the law than his parents and their sort of social circles. That's maybe not the best person to put in charge of enforcing the law. That's just me. But that's what voters in San Francisco saw fit to do. Things have gotten worse and worse, whether it's violent crime Looting and shoplifting, out-of-control homeless populations, and you just you hear about the human waste in the streets and all of this stuff. And there will be a referendum on the law and order leadership of Chesa Boudin in just about a month up there. And you might think, are they really going to do it? There was a recall against Gavin Newsom. He won by like 30 points. 
Are they really in the bluest city in some ways in the country? San Francisco going to get rid of this left-wing DA? I would just remind you that they ousted three school board members recently in San Francisco. Because the schools were closed forever. They were like some of the last schools to reopen in the whole country. The school board was sitting around talking about renaming school buildings that were closed with no students in them because Abraham Lincoln was too offensive or whatever. And even the people of San Francisco can only take so much. So three of them were put on a recall ballot and they all got swept out of office. And it wasn't even close. It was like 80-20 percentage wise. So if that's possible on the schools, I think it's also possible on public safety. I guess we'll know soon enough. And here in the Los Angeles area, just south of here in Los Angeles County, there's a similar disaster of a district attorney, George Gascon. And they're trying to get a recall on the ballot in his case as well. And they've raised millions of dollars. They've collected well more than the required signatures. And they've got a deadline in July to move the same process forward with Gascon in L.A. And what's interesting about the San Francisco recall, some of the career prosecutors who were working under the D.A. resigned their office, resigned their position to go work basically full time on the campaign to oust their boss. That's how outraged they are about the soft on crime, which I don't think even captures it. Like, soft on crime is one thing. It's problematic enough. Being effectively pro-crime is the next level. And they were fed up, so they're trying to pour everything they've got into that race. And so circle that date on your calendar up in SF. And if that works, then I think the L.A. effort, a very similar one, will gain momentum and steam here in Southern California as well. I just saw a video this morning of a city outside of San Francisco in Northern California, apparently like a nice area where there was a Walgreens just overrun by looters who had garbage bags. And they were just going through and clearing the place out, just taking their arms, sliding it down the shelf and just pouring everything into bags and running out. And people were standing in line waiting to pay. There's a woman with her stroller and her kid just watching all of this play out. When you send the message that crime is acceptable, people get the message. And the ripple effect, the blast radius of that new mentality and that new signal from the government is not easily contained. There is a column in the San Francisco Chronicle about a father who basically solved a crime. His family's stuff was stolen. He did all the legwork as sort of an amateur sleuth. He's like uh, at home, Sherlock Holmes type character. And he figured out everything and he handed it to the police on a platter. Hey, the stolen goods are here. Here's the evidence. And because of the lack of support that the police have in that city and a lack of confidence, one would imagine, that the criminals... Mere petty thieves would actually face prosecution. The police basically had to shrug and say, you know, we can't really do much. And off the thieves went. Can you imagine the frustration of having stuff stolen from you? You know who did it. 
you present that information to the local authorities and the authorities basically say, sorry, our hands are tied and off go your goods that you paid for with money that you earned. It's just another example of this decline. And some of that decline is particularly acute and beyond debate out here on the West Coast. It's not just L.A. It's not just SF. You go up the coast even further. Portland. I mean, my goodness. Seattle. How often do we have Jason Rance on this show talking about the insanity up there? So I think the country might be in the mood for a course correction. And it might not just be the knuckle-dragging right-wingers who are responsible. You have a lot of people who are really ticked off, which is why, if things keep going the way they are, the Democratic Party could be in in for some very unpleasant surprises a number of months from now in November. Now, in another very blue city, in a very blue state, this story is out of Chicago. I just saw this the other day, and then I'm up on a break here. But it's very much in the vein of the crime problem. We've talked about how in D.C. there seem to be carjackings like every day. Some of them get violent. People have been murdered in the process of being carjacked. That's in D.C. where the local government seems very obsessed with covid regulations, not so much with the violent crime that has expanded even into the quote unquote nice areas. People don't feel safe on the streets. They don't feel safe in their cars. Well, that is also very much the case in large portions of the city of Chicago, where I used to live. And we've been talking about the carjacking problem there as well. So the Wall Street Journal reports on this new phenomenon where some residents in wealthier neighborhoods, because this is no longer, you know, in in the past, you'd have these horrible spasms of violence all the time in Chicago, but it was typically in certain areas in the south side and the west side of the city. And what has people really worried is the crime spilling over since the pandemic and some of the riots that summer with the social justice movements, the crime has now bled into other areas of the city, the nice areas of the city where people have felt for a long time safe and they don't anymore. So in some of those neighborhoods on the north side of Chicago, these wealthy neighborhoods, they've banded together, folks have, to pool their money and hire their own private security as crime is rising in the Windy City. So here's the story. Alarmed by growing numbers of carjackings and other street crimes, several neighborhoods on Chicago's affluent north side have signed up for patrols by armed off-duty police officers to create what some security companies are calling virtual gated communities. At least five neighborhoods in or adjacent to Chicago's north side have added patrols for the first time in the past six months, or they're planning to sign up for patrols with P4 Security Solutions, LLC. These officers ride in marked security cars equipped with overhead lights, cameras, and high-tech communications tools. They are not tasked with making arrests, but they are allowed to carry guns because they are sworn police officers. They contact 911 in an emergency, and they act as a deterrent. The willingness of neighborhood associations to pay for security in neighborhoods such as Lincoln Park, Bucktown, and Lakeview 
comes amid a surge of crime in Chicago and other cities, where interest in private security is also on the rise. So, like, I can't blame these people. They're taking this into their own hands. They're worried about their own safety and the safety of their kids. They're doing what they can. They've got the resources to do it. This is such a failure of a core function of government, illustrated so explicitly here. And it underscores yet again, when law and order breaks down, the people who suffer the worst are the people with the least because they cannot afford this, just like they can't afford to send their schools, their kids rather, to private schools. They can't afford to bring in private security for themselves. They are at the mercy of criminals if criminals are being coddled by the state, by the city, by the government. So people obsessed with equity and fairness have a lot to answer for on the law and order front as well. Just a few snapshots from L.A., San Francisco, Chicago on the issue of crime. To open today's Guy Benson show, it's a brand new week. We're glad you're here. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson show. Jason in the house. The Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. It is SCOTUS season with some very big decisions coming down in the coming weeks, including on abortion and guns and some very major hot button issues. Here's one of the decisions rendered today. And this is good news. This was a First Amendment case involving the city of Boston, where I guess Boston would on city flagpole allow various groups to fly their flag on this flagpole at City Hall. And they had a whole wide array of all sorts of groups that would fly the flag. And there was a Christian camp, a Christian organization that wanted to fly their flag that featured a cross. And they called it a Christian flag. And Boston said, nope, we're not going to fly that one because that would be the endorsement of religion by the state. We have to separate church and state. I think this is a gross misunderstanding of the First Amendment and the government's relationship to religion. But that was the decision that Boston rendered, and there was a lawsuit over it. It made it up to the Supreme Court, and the decision today was 9-0. to zero. Justice Breyer, who's retiring, authored the decision saying that Boston was wrong in this case, that they applied an unfair standard, and that the Christian flag can fly at City Hall. So that's a 9 nothing decision unanimous on this issue, which is, from my perspective, pretty heartening. When we come back, we will get the latest from Ukraine. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg weighs in next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Do not be bullied by bullies. If they're making threats, you cannot back down. That's my view of it, that you, you were there for the fight. And you cannot, uh, you cannot fold to a bully. 
It's the Guy Benson Show. That was the voice of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She was in Poland, but she also, in a surprise visit, was in Kiev, Ukraine, meeting with President Zelensky over the weekend. And they were in the streets. They were meeting face-to-face. And let me just say this. You will rarely hear a positive word about Nancy Pelosi on this show, admittedly. And I look forward very much to seeing her hand the gavel off after November. Sometime early next year, I think, would be the scheduled time for that if the elections go the way we expect them to. And that will be a great moment for the country. That being said, I'm really glad she did this. Like, no sarcasm, no snark. This is not a partisan issue. We are on the side of the Ukrainians fighting for their country in the face of a brutal, nasty enemy. An invading force, the Russians, who are in the wrong. And for Speaker Pelosi to show up in the capital city, which is still being hit with attacks, I think sends a good message. I'm glad that she did that and good for her. So you can mark that down. Some praise for Speaker Pelosi, very rare here on the program. Joining us now to talk about Ukraine and Russia's war in that country is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor. He is a former national security advisor to Vice President Pence and the former chief of staff of the National Security Council under President Trump. His book is War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. General, good to have you back here. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me on today. Without getting into the politics, I made my political commentary there, speaking for myself. Just from your perspective, is it useful and meaningful to have high-ranking American officials, what is she, third in line for the presidency, showing up in person to signal not just, you know, symbolic solidarity, but on-the-ground solidarity in addition to all the military aid? Yeah, I think any, I, you nailed it just a, few, uh, just a few seconds ago when you talked about Pelosi going on. I think it is. I always think it's good when senior officials go into and show support. You know, I kind of had hoped that the president would go in or the vice president would go in. I know there's risk associated with that, and I know there's concerns about that, but that would be something really fundamental in showing the concern of the free world and support of the free world as well. I mean, Boris Johnson's been in there. Macron's been in there. Uh, in a, in, but but being Nancy Pelosi going there and others, I think that's very, very important. It does show, you know, support. And, you know, we've got a pretty large package coming their way. We've given them a lot of equipment. So there, I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's mind we're supporting Ukrainians. I would say my only frustration, very honestly, Guy, it's just been a little bit slow. Yeah. It's almost like the first 30 days we were kind of, well, was how this is going to end. And then in the last, well, it's, you know, 37-plus days, it's, it's been kind of gangbusters. We've really gone after it pretty hard. We should have because I think we're starting to make some equivalents on the battlefield. And I think that's important. Yeah, and look, there's no partisan gap. If you look at the polling, Republicans, independents, Democrats are all lopsidedly, overwhelmingly in favor of being with the Ukrainians on this. And whether it's a Speaker of the House with a D next to her name or a group of Republican senators who went to the region, I think it's good that we can put partisanship aside on this one. And certainly that's what the Ukrainians need. And boy, are the Russians really taking it on the chin still. We saw this report in the Wall Street Journal. uh, This was earlier today. Ukraine announcing that it sank two Russian naval vessels in the Black Sea using drone strikes. And there is footage of these strikes. The ships were hit. These are Raptor-class 
patrol boats, and they were hit just before 5 a.m. local time. It's not clear whether they sank or not, but they were successfully attacked. We're now getting stories like this pretty frequently, General, where there are pretty significant Russian assets going down and getting taken out. Tanks, you know, by by the hundreds at this point. Now a number of vessels, and it's quite clear that the Russians do not have air superiority. Uh, what is your read on this latest development? Yeah, that's a it's a it's a great catch to talk about that because what that did is almost like it's sort of like the Russians they're not really paying attention to what's going on. What they did is that was near Snake Island, which is relatively close to Odessa. Those two ships that went down, and then you had the Moscow on top of that, because the Ukrainians do have anti-ship missiles. They're they're homegrown. They're called Neptunes, and they go out about 160 miles. But because of that, and now that the sinking of those two right there, the Russian ability to have some type of amphibious landing into the southern reach into Odessa is virtually gone. And now they'll realize that. And and it was really kind of a a stupid move on the Russians' part to put those vessels at risk when they know they've got drones over it. They know they've got the anti-ship missiles out there. And so what's happened is Zelensky has solidified his southern area around around, uh, Odessa. If they want to take Odessa, they, the Russians, they're going to have to continue to move uh, from the west uh, to the west from the east, and I don't think they can do it. So I think that's the major seaport. That is the biggest seaport the the Ukrainians have on the Black Sea. It's very critical to them, and I think that's that's helped them. And I think when you look at the losses the Russians have overall, it somebody said, well, they've only lost about 25 percent of their forces. I said, Wait a second. In the, when you lose 25 percent of your force, that means you're 75 percent capable. You are in the American military. You are considered to be combat ineffective. That means those units that are there have to be reconstituted, re-equipped, basically retrained, and probably a lot of their senior leaders are gone. They're they're having some enormous problems, uh, frankly, Guy, because uh, everybody I've talked to now, the way they have fought this was a lot of hubris, a lot of arrogance, and they just didn't believe the Ukrainians would fight as hard as they did. You know, I've said before, (laughs) kind of tongue-in-cheek, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And and they've really gotten a hold of a pretty bad dog in Ukraine. And I think they're doing exceptionally well. And I don't think, very candidly, I think they're it's reached now to be a conventional fight, and the equipment we're giving them is going to make some equivalents out of that fight, which is important. And and I don't know how the Russians are going to hold what they've got, but there's, I don't believe they can advance much farther to the west from where they're at right now. They may try to hold what they have, but I don't think Zelensky's going to give them a break on this one. So I want to come back to that in just a second. But first, you just touched on it. Here's the headline from FoxNews.com. More than a quarter of Russia's army in Ukraine is now, quote, combat ineffective, according to the United Kingdom. So their Ministry of Defense in the U.K. and their intelligence services have assessed this. They're saying more than a quarter are, in their estimation, combat ineffective. Is that a fair term in your understanding of what that means? And to your point a moment ago, to be degraded that much may seem like, okay, a 75% in school, you still get a C. But given how badly they've been doing already, to have that depletion of their resources and to have so many tools no longer at their disposal or you know now eliminated from the battlefield, that seems like a huge deal. It is, Guy. And, and that's the reason I said a minute ago, in the American military, if you get to that level, 75%, and again, you're right, it sounds like, well, they're still pretty capable. They're really not. 
Uh, that's what we're, we consider that to be combat and effective. And when you look at the time they've been fighting, which is now 67 days, 68 days now, it, it, that it actually it's really hard on equipment and it's really hard on people. And they don't have the ability to replenish the good logistic systems to go into it. So when you look, when you put all of that together, when you look at the capability of the unit being 75 percent, when you look at the amount of kit they've used, the missiles they've shot, the the uh, uh, the artillery they've shot, with their kit going down, the amount of tanks they've lost or APCs lost, going. This is a very depleted organization, and and, and that's the reason I said I don't think they've got the force structure now to go further to the west. Now, I, if you give, give me just a second here, is the reason for that is. When they came up with a strategy, the guy who came up with that strategy was a guy named Gerasimov, who's basically the equivalent of Mark Milley in the Russian military. They came up with a, a, a plan a few years ago of how to construct their military using what they call BTGs, Battalion Tactical Groups, which are 700 to 1,000 uh, man troops. Uh, they, they fought independently. But they didn't fight combined arms like the American military does. We fight with infantry and armor and artillery and air support all put together all at once, moving forward in a very robust attack. The Russians don't do that. Because of that, they've, they've gone and they've attacked piecemeal, and that's been an absolute disaster for them. It's almost like they had the wrong strategy and the wrong fight at the wrong time, and they're paying a terrible price for it. It's good for us, but it's not good for the Russians. Jennifer Griffin, our colleague at Fox News, national security correspondent, tweeted this early this afternoon, so about three hours ago. Ukraine's military has pushed the Russian military about 40 kilometers back from the city of Kharkiv. This according to a senior U.S. defense official. So that would be our folks at the Pentagon who clearly have access to excellent intelligence out of Ukraine, much to the chagrin of the Russians, because that intelligence is showing up in the hands of the Ukrainians who are using it to great effect. Our people, the U.S. military, they have assessed the situation. This is in the eastern part of the country, and this would sound to me, unless I'm misreading this, like a Ukrainian gain. They're they're pushing, repelling the Russians back 40 kilometers from Kharkiv, I think is one of the big cities that the Russians had their eyes on and felt like they might be able to conquer relatively easily. This also strikes me as, if true, if confirmed, this seems also like a pretty big thing, General. Well, it is. It shows that the Ukrainians have gone on the offense. And I, the one, not only is Kharkiv important, if you look at the maps that are coming out, look to the south uh, near Odessa, and there's huge Ukrainian counterattacks going on that are pushing those forces back towards Crimea. And why that's important, it forces the Russians now to look in two different directions. And they're since they able to mass their forces, which is a principal war, you know, mass and then attack. They can't do that because they're being pushed around. There's a lot of equivalence in force structure up there. The Ukrainians can almost match the Russians um, man for man up in the north around Kharkiv, and they're doing quite well. They're doing well in the south as well. So it's sort of like, you know, they've kind of like the Russians have shot their bolt. They gave it their best shot, and now they're hoping to hold on a little bit. And the longer this goes, and the more equipment we can flow in, more artillery, more air, more armored vehicles that are coming out of uh, Poland right now, the new T-72s that they've sent to the Ukrainians. This is going to make equivalence to make harder on the Russians. And it's, I think time now is not on the Russian side. So I think when you get to the 9th of May, that's their big day because it's victory day. I think if something successful doesn't happen for the Russians by 9 May, they're going to have to start looking at an alternative. And I don't know what that alternative is, but it may be some way to, uh, to, say, to reach out and say, well, 
you know, let's talk right now. Let's see where we're at right now and come to some negotiated position. I don't think Zelensky will, but I think the Russians may have to. I mean, that's the question that I have. And I know you just sort of answered saying you're not sure what it looks like. But what's the end game? Like, let's say the Russians keep losing and it keeps getting worse for them. Putin obviously has so much invested in this in every way. Could he possibly bring himself to sue for peace and basically slink away? I mean, I'm not sure if the Russian population is ready for that. I mean, they've got this full bore, you know, propaganda campaign going up in Russia where the population is, you know, very much in favor of the war and they view this as a matter of national honor and they feel like they're doing well because they're being lied to. Could Putin really walk away from this? Or if he's feeling defeated, does he then escalate with unconventional weapons or even these tactical nukes, feeling like his back's up against the wall and he might be a man with very little to lose if he is, as rumored, you know, chronically ill and and perhaps even, you know, quite unwell. That's what I want to know, because I'm, I'm rooting for Ukraine. I love all of these updates where the Russians are facing setback after setback. That's great. I just don't know what comes next realistically if the setbacks continue. Yeah, and that's, frankly, Guy, my biggest concern is I don't know where there's an interlocutor who can basically get to Putin and say, hey, right. this is where you need to go if somebody's out there. Because the guy he that the reporting is that he's going to turn the reins over if he has to go in for surgery, if the reports are true, is to Petruchev, his national security advisor, who's actually a hawk's hawk. I mean, he's really he's, – he's much more of a hawk than Putin is. And we had uh, an association with him in the last administration because he was a national security advisor back then. And he, he leads this group of the civil. And the Siloviks are basically, for, better, for lack of a better term, they're the swamp of Moscow, where these are the guys, former KGB, former military, a hardline group that's like a kitchen cabinet. So we're not he's not turning it over to somebody who's a nice guy who can figure out how to get out of it. But I don't see that. But Zelensky doesn't plan on giving in. And if Zelensky doesn't have any intention on giving in, and they start pushing that back, that you know, I don't think they can afford – to have a Russian army that is truly defeated, and if they have to retreat from where they're at or withdraw from the positions they've got, the entire world will see that as a defeated Russian army, and the consequences of that are are really unknown. But yeah, it's like you know, how can they how can they potentially save face while getting out of this? Or again, is this a guy in Putin who's terminally ill potentially, who? doesn't really care if he's going to do something absolutely outrageous that will shock the world and perhaps draw Russia into a wider conflict. I don't know. That's that's the part of this that is, I think, concerning to me. But I don't think it's a good reason to pull back support for the Ukrainians at the same time. We're all watching it very closely, you especially. General, we always appreciate your time. This is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor here on The Guy Benson Show. General, thank you. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. If you're like me, you're sort of knocking on wood whenever you talk about what is likely coming in November. I think this country needs some big changes. The Democrats are in charge of everything in Washington, D.C., and we can see how that's going. And based on a lot of the data, some of which we're going to get into coming up in the next segment at the top of the next hour with Britt Hume, I mean, it really looks like Republicans are gearing up for a very, very good day in November, but you never know. And I keep sort of looking over my shoulder, 
wondering, will there be some sort of a pivot by the Democrats to something more effective to maybe stem the tide or turn the tide a little bit? And maybe things will change in their favor. Could that happen? Yeah, it could happen. And then you see headlines like this, and I start to think, "Ah, I think they might just be screwed. (laughs) Here's it. Politico. Biden world wants to make the midterms more about Trump and hopes Elon Musk will help. Talk about a completely out of touch nonsense plan, if you can even call it that. This is desperate wish casting. The Elon Musk thing is, to me, like a non sequitur, like, oh, they want to make the midterms more about Trump. And they're hoping what Elon Musk buying Twitter is going to help them illustrate their point or something. It doesn't make any sense. And it's extremely insular. It speaks to administration and a a political team led by the White House, uh, the White House chief of staff, who famously spends a ton of time on Twitter that are locked into a tiny little bubble. Twitter is not real life. We'll say it over and over again. I use Twitter way more than the average person. Most Americans are not on Twitter. Only a fraction of the people who are on Twitter actually drive the conversation. And as a platform, it leans heavily to the left. It is not reflective of the attitudes across this country. It is an echo chamber of hardcore partisans. So this fixation on Musk and Twitter, I think, is a big miss. By Team Biden, if that's the direction that they're going and then try to make it a referendum on Trump, who will not be on the ballot when Democrats are in charge of every lever of power in Congress and the White House. Good luck with that. I mean, it's just not going to work. Just ask sitting Governor Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, who tried to make that race all about Donald Trump. And who do we actually get? Governor Glenn Youngkin. But if Biden wants to try again, go for it, bud. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome in from the left coast, Southern California. I'm Guy Benson. Very glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the live show as we air. And if you can't catch all of it, there's a podcast for that. GuyBensonShow.com for all the details there. It's free. It is on demand. So that's some good stuff. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closing up just a little bit today. 84 points in the green. Ending the day at 33,061. Quick programming note, I'll be joining Shannon Bream, our Fox News colleague, tonight on her show, Fox News at Night. That's in the midnight hour, Eastern, 9 o'clock here in the West. Joining me now as we kick off this central second of three hour here on the program is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Britt, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Guy. Glad to be here. I would like to start with some polling that came out over the weekend that I thought was very interesting. NPR and PBS and their pollster Marist took a national survey of the electorate 
And they asked, among other things, about the generic congressional ballot, which is something that people often look at. It typically is a metric that favors the Democrats. And in this case, in this poll, the Republicans have a three-point lead over the Democrats. And the question is, which party would you rather have control Congress after the next election? So the Republicans being up by any margin, let alone three or more, is a pretty significant deal. When you start to look at the internals of this poll, and I don't want to read too deeply into one single poll, although there was a poll last week that had the Republicans up 10 on this metric. So, you know, you can kind of pick your data set. None of it looks that great for the Democrats. I was struck by independents. Republicans have a seven point lead with independents in this poll. Parents with school age children prefer Republicans by more than 20 points in this poll. It's like 60 to 31. That's the advantage for the Republicans. So it's a huge lead for Republicans among these parents. And then Latinos, the Republicans have a double-digit lead with Hispanic voters. Look, I'm cautious on any of these internals, and I don't want to, again, put too much stock into any particular poll. But, Britt, I mean, if, if parents are going that heavily for Republicans, if Republicans are even competitive with Hispanics, and if Republicans are leading somewhat comfortably among independents, I mean, that would be the equation that would add up to a pretty dramatic red wave, would it not? It would. And I've seen um, cycles when the Republicans were actually underwater in the generic ballot, that is to say, which party would you prefer to be in control, in which the Republicans won the election, won, you know, won seats, gained seats, and won handily. So when they're ahead, you can imagine what that tells you. So it's, it, this looks at the moment quite dark for the Democrats, and it does not appear when you look at the set of issues that people care about, inflation being, of course, number one in everybody's mind, that there's much they can do to change their trajectory between now and Election Day. And that brings us to something that we were just talking about in the previous segment, which I think, to me, speaks to the total bankruptcy when it comes to any ideas that the Democrats have and and the president's inner circle has when it comes to maybe trying to turn the ship around even just a little bit. Politico has a story out today. And again, it's just like totally bereft of any original thinking or any meaningful plans here. The headline is Biden world wants to make the midterms more about Trump and hopes Elon Musk will help. I cannot imagine a more out of touch plan if that's actually their game plan to try to get Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter to get that to be relevant and somehow tie that to Trump and make this what a referendum on Donald Trump in an election where Joe Biden is president and the Democrats control Congress. I mean, it, it seems almost comically desperate. Well, they don't have much, do they? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that the, the jobs are coming back and the unemployment rate is low is canceled to a great extent by the fact that nobody feels good about it because inflation. So the economy, which is an issue under more normal circumstances, might be helping the Democrats, is not helping them. In fact, it's the contrary. And so you look around for an issue where they're, you know, where they're doing well. Um, you, know, you might look at the situation that we seem to you know, our ally Ukraine seems to be holding off Russia pretty well, and no one can predict the outcome there. I think people are more worried about it than they are anything else. And so that's not an issue that, that seems to be helping the Democrats. So there's not much out there. So they're hoping that January 6th and it's reminders of Trump's behavior after the election and anything else they can, that, that they can grab onto 
to make people think to make Donald Trump the issue will help them, and maybe it will. Um, but but there we are, and you know the, the more important question probably is, you know, how much a difference Donald Trump will make on the Republican side in these upcoming primaries. Yeah, which I want to get to here in just a second. And you know, look, it is possible that the Democrats can run on Trump opposition twenty four seven for weeks leading up to the fall, and maybe they can in certain districts play up, uh, you know, the issue of abortion because the Supreme Court has a big ruling coming down in a number of weeks on that. Maybe they can mitigate some of their losses in certain places, but I'm I'm just skeptical because we saw that playbook deployed in Virginia, Trump and abortion over and over and over again against Glenn Youngkin who then won the election. So I just I can't imagine what political strategist worth his or her salt looks at what happened a year ago, or not even a year ago, in Virginia, how badly this particular playbook fared for the Democrat there, Terry McAuliffe, and said, you know what, let's just try that nationally. Uh, it, it seems like malpractice. Tying Glenn Youngkin in Virginia to Trump didn't work. Uh, abortion didn't work either, but that could change, Guy. If the Supreme Court blows up Roe versus Wade and declares that abortion is not a constitutional right, that would be an animating factor among a lot of Democratic voters and a lot of people, you know, and among that subset of Republican uh, voters who who think that the party's on the wrong track on abortion. So that's that's a wild card that has to be watched. But beyond that, I don't you know, I don't see um, much that can help the Democrats between now and the fall. Yeah, because well, I mean, it would also one other possibility. Sure. Republicans could nominate a set of Lulu candidates that are simply not electable. Yeah, and, and that could happen in some races. Yep, that, uh, that is... Some races that could happen, particularly those Senate races. Points on the field is something that we saw in 2010, and even in big Republican years where bad nominees uh, allowed the Democrats to at least limit some of their losses, uh, that could very well play out. We'll see who gets nominated in what races. And, of course, the abortion issue is heavily animating on both sides, and it is a wild card. I think you're absolutely right to describe it that way. You made reference to President Trump, the former president, and his influence within the party. There is a lot of attention focused on the state of Ohio tomorrow. They have their primaries tomorrow, and that Senate primary on the Republican side has been something of a bleep show, is what I would call it. It's been a mess Uh, President Trump finally weighed in recently. He endorsed J.D. Vance in that race, which may have scrambled the contours of that race. The polls have turned around a little bit, and it seems like some of the people who were lagging are now surging, and Vance is ahead at least in one poll. Trump was doing a rally in Nebraska over the weekend, and, well, you can judge whether or not he's super committed to J.D. Vance because he couldn't quite remember the name of the guy he endorsed in that race and, in fact, used the last name of someone that his endorsee is fighting in, in Josh Mandel. Here's what Trump said. Cut eight. By the way, 33-0 and in Texas. I was three on endorsements, 33-0. and And, you know, if I lost one race, they'd say Trump was humiliated. That's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for one race. You know, we've endorsed Dr. Oz. We've endorsed J.P., right? J.D. Mandel. And he's doing great. They're all doing good. So he calls him J.P., which is wrong. Then he gets to J.D., which is the first name. And then instead of Vance, he goes with Mandel. And look, he just, you know, he blanked on it for a moment. I don't want to read too deeply into it. But it's probably not helpful for Vance to have 
his opponent's last name touted as the guy that Trump endorsed by Trump. And I don't know, it just feels kind of like a transactional thing where Trump's heart isn't necessarily in it. And you can already tell he's maybe doing some preemptive damage control about, oh, we might we might actually lose a race where we've endorsed in. I just wonder what you think, Britt, of, of this whole dynamic and Trump's grip, iron grip on the party. Is it loosening at all here? I think it is loosening. And the, and the number I would cite on that is a number that as a there's a poll that's been taken several times. A question has been asked several times of, of Republican voters, which is, are you do you consider yourself more a supporter of, of Donald Trump or a supporter of the Republican Party? And for quite a number of, of uh, polls, the answer came back. Distinct majority said they were supporters of Donald Trump. That has now flipped. And by something like a 20 point margin, uh, respondents on that poll said they were supporters of the Republican Party more than supporters of Donald Trump. Now, that doesn't mean that Trump's influence has vanished. It hasn't. But it does mean that, that it may well have weakened. And after we've got the results of, of this whole range of, of primary contests across the country and we see how the Trump back nominees or Trump back candidates do, we'll have a better sense of that. And then, of course, the big question is will he run? And if he does run, will somebody who has his agenda but, but is not he? Uh, takes him on uh, and can overtake him, and that's that's the that's the big question. Yeah, if that happens, now we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But I was talking about this over the weekend. If there's another big crowded field of fifteen to twenty people running for president on the Republican side, and Trump is one of them, I think that that dynamic immensely helps him because he's got a consolidated base. And if everyone else is fractured again, it's like 2016 redux. It would have to be a much smaller field, I think, for anyone to have a chance to overtake Trump, who's the front runner. And I think something that everyone is looking at pretty closely, including Trump himself, is how these endorsements play out. Whether it's J.D. Vance in Ohio, we'll know tomorrow. Right. If if Vance wins, Trump will say that's a big feather in his camp. If he doesn't win, there'll be a different narrative. Trump had to abandon his a preferred candidate in Alabama, unendorse Mo Brooks because he wasn't going to win. In Georgia, the governor's race, Trump is endorsed against Brian Kemp. That doesn't look like it's going to play out. So May is going to be a very interesting month to watch all of this. And whether it's Trump supporters, Trump himself, Trump detractors, a lot of people are watching these these races and these primaries play out very, very closely. And the first big test really is tomorrow in the Buckeye State. In that Senate primary, Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Britt, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. And we will talk with Britt again soon and come back right after this with an update out of the state of Florida, a gift wrap sort of present to Ron DeSantis from the Democrats down there. We'll tell you about it next. From Southern California, I'm Guy Benson here on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this headline, and then I had to read the story to make sure that it wasn't maybe distorting something. But no, it's real. Charlie Crist is a Democratic congressman who basically isn't showing up for work anymore. He's running for governor to try to beat Ron DeSantis in Florida, and he is using Nancy Pelosi's virtual voting trick, proxy voting, all the time. So he barely spends any time in Congress doing his job. He casts the votes the way Speaker Pelosi wants him to vote from Florida while he's campaigning basically full time to be governor. He has to win the Democratic primary first. He's up against 
this sort of lunatic woman named Nikki Freed. Neither one of them is a particularly strong candidate, and both of them are likely to lose to DeSantis, who looks like he's in pretty good position to win re-election. He won last time by, what was it, three-tenths of one percent in 2018, and seems like it'll be more comfortable, some more breathing room this time around. You never know. Things could tighten up, but you just look at the cycle, and you look at who these Democrats are, and I would not be surprised if DeSantis wins comfortable, like maybe mid to high single digits on a really good night. Maybe he sniffs double digits. We'll see. Nikki Freed, I saw tweeted earlier saying, we're going to make Ron DeSantis a one-term governor. Like, Yeah, all right, good luck with that. I don't think so. But Charlie Crist, who used to be governor as a Republican, then he became an independent and ran for Senate because he was a sore loser. He lost the Senate primary to Marco Rubio, so he switched parties, ran, and lost. Then he just became a Democrat. And he's just run for everything under every party banner imaginable because he is a soulless vessel who believes nothing. And now he's a Democrat who wants to be governor again from the opposite party of the last time he was governor. Interesting strategy. And he was asked recently at an event if he would be open as governor to mask mandates in Florida. And he said he would be if that's what the experts and what the scientists tell him to do. So basically, if the Florida version of Fauci or even Fauci himself decided at some point in the future, later on in the pandemic, there's a new wave, there's a new variant or something. Charlie Crist opened the door to the imposition of mask mandates in the state of Florida. And I think that is quite an interesting position for him to take. Ron DeSantis has an approval rating in the high 50s for a reason. He's got almost six out of 10 Floridians supporting his handling of COVID. He was a strong and early rejector of a lot of these mitigation strategies that had very little scientific backing, including very prominently mask mandates in schools. And DeSantis said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do mask requirements in the state of Florida. And as even some MSNBC commentators recently admitted, Florida's actually done pretty well when it comes to COVID, kind of middle of the pack while their economy has taken off. And here's Charlie Crist, who's been missing the boat on all of this stuff, opposing DeSantis at every turn, getting issue after issue wrong. And recently he's like, oh, I've got an idea. Maybe we should start opening up. It's like, where do you think you live, Charlie? What do you think Florida has been doing for the last you know, year and a half? Like, what are you doing? Are, are you sentient? Are you aware of your surroundings? Do you know that you live in Florida? And maybe the answer to that question is no, because I cannot imagine what political instinct drove Charlie Crist to even give an inkling that he would let some public health bureaucrat perhaps impose mass mandates on the people of Florida. I can imagine the DeSantis people just running around the office high-fiving each other when this story came out. Because they've got a huge war chest that they're sitting on, $100 million plus. He's going to be the nominee, of course, on the Republican side. He's got a decent lead in the polls. Charlie Crist is a little bit ahead based on the polling in the Democratic primary, and they're just going to nuke this guy from orbit if and when he becomes the nominee. And if you were looking for a hook, sort of like, you know, the Faucian dystopia, what the Florida government could look like under a Democratic administration, this is just a fantastic headline for the Team DeSantis.
So they can say, well, if you like Florida being open and you like your freedom and the way that we've handled the pandemic and the way that our economy has grown and our population has boomed, vote for us. If you are interested in the possibility of some bureaucrat somewhere telling the new governor that you have to wear a mask, then vote for Charlie Crist. And if you can make that sort of a referendum, I think the people of Florida will make their choice pretty decisively in November. So a very helpful soundbite for Ron DeSantis from his likely Democratic opponent in Charlie Crist. Good luck with that, Charlie. The Guy Benson Show continues. When we come back, another issue we talked about masks in schools. I want to stay on the theme of education. An AP story about public schools in America post-COVID that you need to hear. We'll get into that when we return. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show on this Monday from Camarillo, California, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in. We played this soundbite for you last week, and it is newly relevant in light of an Associated Press story that I want to read from. But first, let's flash back. This was a recent interview on MSNBC. Randy Weingarten, one of the most visible teachers union bosses in the country, lamenting what she says is a hostility toward public schools among conservatives and Republicans. Cut 22. They just don't want public schools. You know, they, you know, Milton Friedman didn't want public schools. They, didn't, they wanted to have choice or universal voucher systems. But this time, they don't even care if they even have public education, and they will brutalize anyone who is in their way. Uh, brutalizing people who are in their way sounds exactly like what the teachers union bosses actually do. And the brutalization also happens to students. In fact, they are the premier target of the self-interested, self-dealing predations of the teachers unions. And I use those words intentionally. And as I pointed out when we played the clip last week, it's sort of ironic to hear this woman who is perhaps more than anyone else in the country more responsible for school closures for a year and a half than anyone else, complaining that it's her political opponents, and that's how she views Republicans. She is a Democrat first, an education advocate second or third. Right? I think education and the well-being of kids is pretty far down her list after being a partisan Democrat and being someone who's going to look out for the interests of the adults in her union. Right, The kids are almost an afterthought. But she was extremely influential in getting schools shut down in areas of the country that are run by her political buddies for a year and a half. We learned through leaked emails and documents and FOIA documents as well that the teachers unions put their thumb on the scale with the CDC to get the official scientific guidance altered to the teacher's liking which helped justify keeping schools closed for even longer. Well past the point that we understood pretty early on in the pandemic that schools were incredibly safe areas and kids were overwhelmingly protected from serious cases of COVID, hospitalization, death, by virtue of being kids. And that science was ignored, squelched, altered, suppressed at the behest of teachers' unions, particularly Randy Weingarten and her crew. 
So she's lashing out at Republicans, lashing out at conservatives for not wanting public education to exist at all. I'm pretty sure Glenn Youngkin got elected in Virginia by arguing that the schools, the public schools, needed to be open. Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida built his reputation and actually made this issue one of his top priorities, getting the schools open in Florida. He was sued by the unions down there. He won. The kids were in schools. The results were terrific from a public health perspective and also from an educational perspective. They were wrong. He was right. It was the very conservative governor of Florida who wanted the public schools open because that was in the best interest of the kids in the state. It was Randy Weingarten and company who wanted those schools closed. And now she's out there ranting on MSNBC about how it's really DeSantis and Yunkin, all these horrible Republicans, you name them. They just don't want public schools to exist at all. Well, Randy Weingarten telegraphed very clearly to parents all across the country that, in her opinion, public schools really weren't that indispensable. Right. We had these terms that we threw around during the height of covid about essential workers who was an essential worker. And the teachers unions led by their bosses stood up, raised their hands and shouted as loudly as possible. We are not essential workers. The work that we do teaching your kids in classrooms is not essential. Conservatives disagreed and fought for the schools to open. With Randy Weingarten fighting tooth and nail every step of the way while pretending that, she, oh, of course we want the schools open. But when it came down to actual conduct and actions, her behavior said exactly the opposite. And it won the day again for a year and a half to the extreme detriment of millions of children in this country. And she has the gall to come out and say that really it's the people who wanted schools open. They don't want the schools to exist at all. Now, are we for on the conservative side school choice? You bet. And we should be. And based on what happened in public schools with the closures and based on what is happening in some public schools with some of this indoctrination identity stuff, whether it's on gender or sexuality or race, it would make sense that parents would be interested in, I don't know, looking around, seeing some options. Is there an alternative to the monopoly of the government schools? And a whole lot of parents are thinking, you know what, there is an alternative and we're going to opt for that. Thank you very much. You have shown us exactly who you are, Randy Weingarten, and we would prefer our kids to be educated by someone else, someone who has no attachment to you and over whom you have absolutely no influence. That is a rational choice being made by a lot of parents. Other parents have no choice. They are locked in these schools. Their kids have no alternative. That's why school choice is so threatening to the teachers unions, because people might finally have different options if they weren't locked into that government monopoly. And she's conflating those beliefs with saying, well, let's just abolish all public schools. Maybe if we were starting all over from scratch, we would at least make it so that teachers unions wouldn't control as much as they do, that Randy Weingarten would be off doing some career, I don't know, as a poet or something somewhere, as opposed to being this extremely influential person with a lot of money to throw around, with a lot of Democrats who owe her quite a bit. But I don't think that she really has a standing, whether or not you feel like public schools should be replaced, whether or not you feel like there should be an alternative in school choice and taxpayers should have that opportunity and parents should have those choices. That's what I believe. Regardless of where you fall on that, Randy Weingarten and company have demonstrated that they have absolutely no right to sit on a high horse on any of this stuff because they have 
more than anyone, done more damage to more children in the realm of education in the last two years or so than I think any of us really thought imaginable until we saw it, and we've all witnessed it with our own eyes. So that soundbite that we played really sounds to me like a desperate person who recognizes that the grift, while still extremely lucrative and powerful, is a little bit less so on both fronts, and she's cranky about it. And that grip, that stranglehold on power is loosening just a little bit. And she's not a fan of that. She doesn't like that. And so she goes to a very sympathetic network and symposium, and she throws a tantrum. That's what that was. And part of the tantrum could be driven by data like this from the aforementioned Associated Press story. Headline, headcounts are down at public schools. Now budgets are too. Reading here. A school system in suburban Kansas City is eliminating over 100 jobs, including kindergarten aides and library clerks. Oakland, California, is closing seven schools. Other districts around the country are merging classrooms, selling buildings, and leaving teaching positions unfilled in order to close budget gaps. Public school systems are beginning to feel the pinch from enrollment losses tied to the coronavirus pandemic. Money for schools is driven partly by student headcounts. And emergency provisions in many states allowed schools to maintain funding at pre-pandemic levels. But like the billions of dollars of federal relief money that have helped schools weather the crisis, those measures were not meant to last forever. And they quote a few more people living in districts, working in school districts around the country, talking about budgets and enrollment getting trimmed. They feature one district that peaked in terms of enrollment at around 30,000 students in the fall of 2019, fell by around 900 in the first full school year of the pandemic, and less than 100 of those have returned. Quote, where did the kids go? Asked a school official. Where are they? They didn't come back this year. That's what's laying on that additional reduction in our funding, end quote. Here's a key line in this AP story. Families opting for homeschooling, private schools, and other options sent enrollment down sharply in the first full school year of the pandemic. And generally, it, meaning enrollment, has been slow to recover. Imagine that. Imagine that. You force kids to sit at home looking at a screen, doing so-called remote learning, which has been documented to be a failure. How many stories have we read to you on the air about teachers complaining that it didn't work, students just losing all interest, not showing up for virtual class, falling off the grid, falling through the cracks? And a lot of parents saw this. They were horrified. They were looking over their kid's shoulder and realizing they weren't learning much of anything. And sometimes they were learning that they were being slammed with a bunch of toxic ideology that had nothing to do with reading or writing or math or science. And they said, enough. This is not working for my kid. The school is not going to be open. They would jerk the parents around. We're going to reopen. Oh, never mind. A few more months. We'll get back to you. Oh, you have a problem with CRT-type precepts being taught to your uh, seventh grader or your sixth grader or your third grader? Well, pipe down. You're a potential domestic terrorist. Don't come to our school board meeting. It's closed to the public. If you do, if you raise your voice at all, We're going to call the police on you. 
You got parents saying, you know, I don't think my second grader needs to learn about gender identity. I'm called a bigot. A whole lot of those parents, when you look at all those things, you combine them. They said, we're out of here. We're done. You know what? We're done. It wasn't always perfect. Maybe I had some concerns, but the absolute contempt for people with my values and the absolute lack of concern about learning loss as schools remain closed for no scientific reason month after month after month, we've had enough. Florida's open. Their schools are open. No super spreaders there. What's going on? Europe, they've been open. No masks month after month. We're closed. What is going on? So they looked elsewhere. These parents started educating their kids at home, the homeschooling, which has really blossomed and exploded in the last two years. Private schools, parochial schools, learning pods where people pooled their resources. People realize, you know what, the public government school system and the the bosses of these unions and the Democratic Party politicians that are all in cahoots, they're all colluding against the kids. We've got to extricate our kids from their grasp. So we're going to get creative. We're going to do something else. And enrollment, therefore, in the government schools has come down, and it's not recovering. And if it's recovering, it's awfully slow. And now all these people are looking around each other like, what happened? Your decisions happened. And parents who had the wherewithal to get their kids out in droves decided to do that and exercise that choice. Which brings me back to the Randy Weingarten soundbite and the issue of school choice. How is it fair? How is it equitable to use the buzz phrase that they love on the left for people who are, say, middle class, upper middle class, wealthier, for them to have the flexibility and the means to say, my students' needs are not being met? The classroom is closed. The teacher's spouting a bunch of politicized nonsense. We're going to take our dollars and we're going to help our kid go somewhere else. Why is it fair or equitable that those people get to flee? Those people get to hold schools accountable by taking their business elsewhere. But people earning less, working people, single moms who don't have that money, their kids are stuck in the failing system. It's not fair. Most Americans understand that's not fair, which is why school choice is growing in popularity, which is why someone like Randy Weingarten Sounds like she's got some flop sweat that she has richly earned over these last two years. The mask is fully off. I will leave you in this segment with a tweet from the aforementioned Randy Weingarten. And it blows my mind that she felt like this was a good statistic to put out into the universe. She highlighted this. She chose to amplify this, which just blows my mind, on her official little blue check mark. Twitter account over the weekend, she links to an NPR story, and she quotes this, in 2022, almost half of parents surveyed, 47%, agree with the statement, quote, the pandemic has not disrupted my child's education, end quote. And the headline of the NPR story is, the education culture war is raging, but for most parents, it's background noise. Well, as we mentioned earlier, The new poll from NPR and PBS shows Republicans with a 21-point lead among parents of school-aged children. So maybe it's not exactly background noise. Maybe it is background noise that Glenn Youngkin won by, what, two and a half points in a state that Joe Biden a year prior had won by 10? That the governor of New Jersey almost lost? 
because the Republicans surged and a huge issue in 2021 was schools. And it continues to be a huge issue to this day. And Randy Weingarten feels like the best way she can push back on the narrative is to cite some poll that shows 47 percent of parents agree that the pandemic has not disrupted their kids' education. All right, Randy, I know she's not a math teacher, but if 47 percent say that, what would that leave on the other side of the equation? Would that be 53 percent of parents, a majority saying that the pandemic did disrupt education? She apparently feels like, oh, well, these 47 percent of people are doing fine. So, hey, you know, problem solved. We can wash our hands of this whole thing. You weirdo nutters are totally wrong. And it's just a total self-own. It's a complete self-unaware self-own in a whole string of them by Randy Weingarten. So, I mean, take a bow, Randy. You just keep winning, don't you? By the way, that tweet has 15 retweets, 13 likes, and 734 quote tweets, people wanting to say something in response. I think they call that a ratio, last I checked. The Guy Benson Show continues from Southern California on this Monday, right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Continuing in the vein of education and moving on to higher education, we were talking about K-12 through in the last segment. One of the last remaining apparently acceptable bigotries in polite society, elite, left-dominated society, is anti-Semitism. We talked last week about the incident and the double standard at Georgetown. Talked about something that happened at my alma mater, Northwestern, last week. Now this... From the student newspaper at Harvard, the Harvard Crimson, the editorial board has officially endorsed BDS, which is the Boycott, Divest, Sanction Movement against the State of Israel. The lone, tiny Jewish state, the only one in the whole world. And for a number of reasons, the BDS movement is deemed to be an anti-Semitic movement because it targets in this way the only Jewish state with shocking double standards that are not applied to any other country in the world. And the editorial is rife with misleading statements, inaccuracies, ignorance, and justifications that go even beyond endorsing BDS to sort of denouncing supporters of Israel in a way. And this is the expression of elite opinion at one of the most elite schools in the country. It's a red flag. We need to pay attention to this. It is a growing and disturbing phenomenon. And not just on, you know, small campuses you've never heard of, big ones, where this type of double standard is celebrated and increasingly enforced ruthlessly by sort of the woke, left-wing, identity-obsessed mob. A disgraceful and depressing editorial from the Harvard Crimson. They're getting some pushback, and they deserve it. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Howie Kurtz on the White House Correspondents' Dinner and more straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday... 
from Camarillo, California. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day. And catch me tonight on Fox News Channel, scheduled to be on with Shannon Bream, Fox News at night, sometime after midnight Eastern, although from the left coast. So catch me there or set your DVRs. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious, especially as that warm weather is arriving yet again. We encourage you to check out their website, thelongdrink.com. They are expanding across the country, a national rollout. They're in the middle of it right now. More states to announce in the days and weeks to come. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. With us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Also host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter at foxnewspodcast.com. He's on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. And Howie, it's great to have you back. Great to be back, Guy. Let's start with the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I've been to a few of them. I was not at this one over the weekend. I was out here in California. And I feel like every year there's a perennial conversation about the function of this dinner. I know it's technically like raising money for scholarships for journalism students. That's the nominal purpose of the dinner. But it is this extravagant event. They call it Nerd Prom. And sort of the elite media gather together with politicians that they cover, and they kind of celebrate themselves. And as someone who has covered the media beat for many years, Howie, and I'd imagine you've been to many of these dinners over the course of your career, what do you think? Is this something that is worthwhile? Do the critics overplay how gross it kind of seems to a lot of the country? Has it outlived its usefulness? What do you make of the event just in general? Well, you know, I didn't go this time because hanging out in the ballroom with over 2,000 people didn't seem like a great move on the healthcare front. Um, you know, I think the criticism is a little overstated, but it got so out of control. It sort of discredited itself, especially during the Obama years when all of these journalists who used to go and you actually do some business there. I once talked to uh, John Kelly. Uh, White House Chief of Staff under Donald Trump and got some insight into his role. Somebody, you know, I can't just pick up the phone and call, uh, but bringing all the A-list celebrities and everybody would compete, who's getting Sharon Stone, who's getting Larry David, who's getting this one. That's toned down because, as you know, Guy, this was the first time uh, after a two-year break that there has been a correspondence that because right. of COVID. Right. And Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson were there. So I guess there was some celebrity quotient, but I do think it got out of control. I don't think it's the world's worst idea to have one night a year where journalists and uh, administration officials and you get to see the press secretary and other top aides can put down their arms and listen to a, a comedian, listen to the president, tell some jokes. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not as critical as some folks. I think that's fair. I do also think that it's fair for some people to ask the question, as Brett Bayer did of Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary last week, who appeared on special report. You know, Americans are sitting at home saying, OK, here are all these people who were finger waggers extraordinaire throughout the entire pandemic, safetyists in many cases, shaming people for getting the virus, shaming people for not doing whatever course of action they deemed to be the right thing, whether the science supported it or not. They're all crowded into a ballroom, as you pointed out, 2,000 people. We just saw at the gridiron dinner a few weeks ago, a super spreader event. Dozens of people got COVID, although no one died. I mean, this is the benefit of all the vaccines and the treatments and the less virulent strains and all of that. But still, a lot of people in a ballroom, which is a setting that is a documented super spreader type of situation, 
And at the same time, the administration, while eagerly participating in that event, is fighting right now in court to get mask mandates reimposed on airplanes when the science behind that is dubious to non-existent. And Buttigieg just sort of shrugged it off and said, oh, well, we all understand the difference between airplanes and hotel ballrooms. And the science is actually making the opposite point of what Buttigieg, I think, was trying to say there. And I just think there's some people at home saying these are just hypocrites who do whatever they want to do. They want to shame the people that they want to shame, and they want to live it up when it's in their interest. Is that a fair criticism, especially this year? Absolutely. And Trevor Noah, the comedian uh, the other night, who did a, a really good job, um, made a joke about it and said, oh, you're all going on and on and on about super spreader red. Somebody offers you a free dinner and you all show up. Uh, and it does reek of hypocrisy. And, you know, there is this mindset, including here in Washington, that, well, you know, the pandemic's kind of over. Obviously, the death rates are way down. Are way down. But, you know, uh, a lot of people I know have gotten it, are getting it. Uh, obviously, as you pointed out, fortunately, far fewer people are getting hospitalized or right. facing death. But I think it's a fair criticism. What did you think of the president's performance? And I just have to tell you how I did not watch one minute of any of this. I was I was in L.A. I was doing stuff with with my husband yeah. and some friends. So I, I've only seen a few snippets here or there on Twitter and people posting stuff on Instagram. I saw he poked some fun at himself and his low approval ratings. He, of course, took shots at Fox News, which is something that the Democrats always seem to do. Uh, he was critical of the Republican Party and kind of in a joking way, but not really. Uh, how did Biden do in your estimation? You know, given that Joe Biden is not a great speaker, but obviously had some good uh, joke writers, he did reasonably well. And it was smart to open up with a joke about being in a room with the only people who have a low approval rating than he does. Um, I, I thought, you know, even when he took he took shots at Donald Trump, uh, he took some other shots. But I thought it was all within the sort of usual tenor of the kind of jokes that past presidents have told. Donald Trump famously boycotted uh, the dinner for most of uh, his four years in office, uh, where I really had to tip my hat, and I'm not a fan of Trevor Noah's Daily Show. I think he comes off as just another, you know, liberal who hates the left and hates Fox and so forth. But he gave it to everybody, uh, including a couple of, you know, reasonably uh, mild jokes about the president and Jen Psaki. But he took on CNN over CNN+. Plus. He took on Fox. He took on um, MSNBC. My favorite joke was when he said, um, boy, you know, uh, I got to hand it to MSNBC. When Trump was in office, your shows were all about how bad Trump was. Now that Joe Biden's in office, your shows are all about how bad Trump was. Yeah. <laughs> and he even <laughs> took a swing at uh, Joe and Mika and uh, a couple of Chris Cuomo, one at Jeff Zucker, the ousted CNN president, saying if he didn't, if Zucker didn't want anybody to know about his workplace romance, he could have just put it on CNN Plus. So he, he spread it around pretty evenly. I had a few friends asking me, actually, speaking of CNN Plus, about the optics of all these CNN anchors and stars and executives gathering for this very sort of high-end elitist gathering right on the heels of CNN Plus crumbling and a lot of people already losing their jobs and they've announced more layoffs to come at the network. Is that kind of awkward where business isn't great at the network and a lot of underlings, if you will, will not have jobs pretty soon, but you have sort of the top echelon of that company, you know, hobnobbing and doing their normal thing as if everything's great. Is that just kind of de rigueur or is that in poor taste, given the context? No, I think the optics are terrible, given uh, the mass layoffs and what went down. I mean, obviously, media companies actually bought these tables 
um, probably a month or two ago, and then sure. the money goes for a good cause and all that. But if you if you're somebody who's losing your job or sweating about losing your job, you don't want to see all these hot shots coming down to New York to, to preen around. Remember, it's not just the dinner itself, and this went away during the Trump years. It's all these elite pre-parties and after-parties sponsored by major news organizations. The Vanity Fair party used to be famous. There's a Bloomberg party that went on late into the night. So uh, I think maybe they could have skipped it, at least the top honchos, without uh, – you know, completely boycotting the event. Howie, I want to ask you on a separate note about this disinformation board. I am mystified by what they're even trying for here. It seems like Secretary Mayorkas, because I guess this is emanating from DHS, he is doing damage control. He was on some of the Sunday shows trying to explain what this is, what it isn't. It just seems like such a terrible idea in every way I don't know why it was greenlit. The people that they've put on the board, the woman who's going to chair it and sort of her virtual paper trail that's now been uh, really combed over, combed through by a lot of conservatives. Do you have a sense of what this ministry of truth, whatever you want to call it, what is it? What is the point of it? They're trying to say it's not going to target Americans at all. I, I sort of have trouble believing that. What do you make of this whole thing? Well, first of all, the name is just so Orwellian. It's like the worst idea ever had to ever get approved. Secondly, yes, yes Mayorkas was on uh, Fox and CNN uh, yesterday and saying, oh, no, this is totally misunderstood. He actually took the blame for this ridiculous rollout saying we're only going to deal with national security threats and getting information to minorities. But even when he explained what it does – uh, it still sounded like the government – I don't want the feds – I don't trust politicians of either party to be involved in telling me what is disinformation or misinformation because it's too right. easy to spin it and weaponize it. If they want to respond to a specific case, obviously they have the right to do so. Uh, so it wasn't clear what – but clearly I think it's a way to pressure Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok to take things down that the government disagrees with. And on the case of Nina Jankowitz, uh, she's clearly a longtime liberal with a long paper trail. She, for example, dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop story back in 2020 as being a Russian influence op and a Trump uh, campaign product. Now, she had a long Facebook post yesterday, some of which I read on Media Buzz, uh, saying she's being targeted for this you know, horrible um, online uh, media campaign against her, being attacked because she's a woman, being attacked because she's Jewish. Uh, and on and on and on. And I don't no, she, like anybody, she's being attacked because of what she's time. said and what she's done. Right. Like was she if she's the new czar of the Ministry of Truth to fight disinformation and she has embraced disinformation while falsely calling it disinformation in her own right, like that is 100 percent fair criticism and fair game, given this new role that she has. Yes, but it, it, there's a crucial distinction here. I'm actually writing a column about this right now, which is, you know, all the people that I know, uh, they may have been rough on her, but fine. You know, she is a uh, senior government official. She has a paper trail of um, appearing to be a lefty talking about disinformation in political terms. And uh, all of that criticism is perfectly fair game. But then you get the trolls and the haters and the lowlifes who come out. And, you know, according to examples that she uh, cited in this Facebook post, some of which we can't repeat on the air, it does look like a lot of people went after her and were very sexist, misogynistic, and threatening people. But how can you blame, and this comes up again and again and again, left and right, how can you blame 
the journalists or the politicians who offer legitimate substantive criticism for what a bunch of crazy people do. That's unfortunately the world that we live in. I yep. get it all the time. You get it all the time. And yep. a senior government official has to understand that that does come with the territory. Well, it's a silencing tactic to say, oh, well, you are criticizing me on substance, but that's not fair because some crazy say mean things. Yep. So you shut up. That That's not really auspicious coming from the new disinformation czar. Very quickly, Howie, less than a minute left. The meltdown over Elon Musk and Twitter. I saw an analyst on CNN was saying we need a lot more regulation of this stuff. We're going to hell. This overreaction has been pretty amazing to watch and actually pretty revealing, too, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this led by the left and major news organizations, just we're all drowning in pieces about Elon Musk is evil and he's going to ruin Twitter. Well, you know what? All the things they're complaining about, like Twitter being too toxic and allowing hate speech, they are problems right now, months before he even takes over. Mm-hmm. The demonization of Elon Musk and the journalist's uh, willing participation in it, you know, again, like he's not a Boy Scout. He can be criticized. We should look at his record and all that. But it is it's so revealing that some people in the mainstream media, many, I think, actually favor censorship, kicking people off. Donald Trump has exhibit A, and it's just been uh, amazing to watch. It's an incredible story. You know what? Musk is very capable of punching back online, and sometimes he's very funny in the way he does it. And we will have an example of that coming up in our very next segment. But yes, Howie, it has been, to me, quite disturbing to see the number of journalists who have been very eager to crack down on free speech and endorse censorship because it's the type of content that they don't like or deem problematic. They should be the vanguard of the opposite, but we live in strange times. Howie Kurtz is host of Media Buzz every Sunday on Fox News, 11 a.m. Eastern. His podcast is Media Buzz Meter. His Twitter feed, at Howard Kurtz. Always a pleasure, Howie. Talk soon. Thanks, Guy. And that Elon Musk story that we just teased is up next on the Happy Hour. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. This made me chuckle. It happened late Thursday. AOC, the congresswoman from New York, had posted some rant about billionaires, unsurprisingly. And the backdrop that I need to remind you of is, what was it, a few months ago, AOC weirdly went on this diatribe on social media about how all these Republicans criticizing her were doing so because deep down they're like sexually frustrated dudes and they all want to date her and they can't. So instead they criticize her politically, which was a very odd, myopic, delusional, self-absorbed thing for her to put out there. But that was all also simultaneously very much on brand for her. And we talked about it here at the time. I pointed out to the congresswoman that I can very much guarantee that my criticisms of her have nothing to do with a uh, latent desire to date her on my part for reasons that should be obvious if you're familiar with me at all. Uh, So that was, just again, like this very bizarre framing. And so she then on Friday tweets this, and the subtext very much seemed to be about Twitter and Elon Musk and that whole controversy. She said, quote, tired of having to collectively stress about what explosion of hate crimes is happening because some billionaire with an ego problem unilaterally controls a massive communication platform and skews it because Tucker Carlson or Peter Thiel took him to dinner and made him feel special. That was her tweet. I mean, unhinged, but again, on brand. Elon Musk, 
who is just a troll extraordinaire on Twitter and someone who will very likely own Twitter quite soon with that acquisition, $44 billion, he responded, he just replied to that tweet with this, quote, stop hitting on me, I'm really shy. <laughs> Which is just a perfect takedown because it's using her stupid, like, sexual frustration, flirtation, desire to date framing that she put out into the universe. That was her decision months ago. And Musk is just using it against her, saying, oh, this somewhat vitriolic criticism of apparently him has to be driven by AOC's secret desire to date Elon Musk. So he just went with it. Stop hitting on me. I'm really shy. Oh, that is well played. I said they should print out that tweet, frame it, and hang it in the Smithsonian. It is very emblematic of our times. Our very deeply silly times. AOC, by the way, perhaps in a panic, replied that she wasn't talking about Musk. She was talking about Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Eh, I doubt it. Given what was red hot on Twitter and that topic du jour, that the left was melting down about, I think there's a very good chance she was talking about Elon Musk. He roasted her with her own ridiculous, self-absorbed standard. And then she tried to play it off like, oh, no, I wasn't talking about you. Why are you so obsessed with me? I'm not even talking about you. Nice try, AOC. Nice try. I think we know what was going on here. And he won that exchange. And she kept tweeting about it. It was in her head. For that reason alone, I feel like, Elon Musk is doing something of a public service. He's entertaining, and he has really caused a lot of people to reveal who they really are. AOC we already knew, but the journalists, the things that they've been posting and saying, uh, it's instructive, and we are paying attention, and it's all out there in public. Stop hitting on me. I'm really shy. Oh, A+. I mean, on a troll rating, that is a 10 out of 10. Hats off here on the Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from Camarillo, California. Glad you're listening. Earlier in the program today, we caught up with Britt Hume, our colleague at Fox News, senior political analyst at the network. A lot to discuss with him. Polling numbers, the political climate right now. Here's part of my conversation with Britt Hume. I would like to start with some polling that came out over the weekend that I thought was very interesting. NPR... And PBS and their pollster Marist took a national survey of the electorate and they asked, among other things, about the generic congressional ballot, which is something that people often look at. It typically is a metric that favors the Democrats. And in this case, in this poll, the Republicans have a three point lead over the Democrats. And the question is, which party would you rather have control Congress after the next election? So the Republicans being up by any margin, let alone three or more, is a pretty significant deal When you start to look at the internals of this poll, and I don't want to read too deeply into one single poll, although there was a poll last week that had the Republicans up 10 on this metric. So, you know, you can kind of pick your data set. None of it looks that great for the Democrats. I was struck by independents. Republicans have a seven point lead with independents in this poll. Parents with school age children prefer Republicans by 
more than 20 points in this poll. It's like 60 to 31. That's the advantage for the Republicans. So it's a huge lead for Republicans among these parents. And then Latinos, the Republicans have a double-digit lead with Hispanic voters. Look, I'm cautious on any of these internals, and I don't want to, again, put too much stock into any particular poll. But, Britt, I mean, if if parents are going that heavily for Republicans, if Republicans are even competitive with Hispanics, and if Republicans are leading somewhat comfortably among independents, I mean, that would be the equation that would add up to a pretty dramatic red wave, would it not? It would. And I've seen um, cycles when the Republicans were actually underwater in the generic ballot. That is to say, which party would you prefer to be in control in which the Republicans won the election, won, you know, won seats, gained seats, and won handily. So when they're ahead, you can imagine what that tells you. So it's it, this looks at the moment quite dark for the Democrats, and it does not appear when you look at the set of issues that people care about, inflation being, of course, number one in nearly everybody's mind, that there's much they can do to change the trajectory between now and Election Day. And that brings us to something that we were just talking about in the previous segment, which I think, to me, speaks to the total bankruptcy when it comes to any ideas that the Democrats have and and the president's inner circle has when it comes to maybe trying to turn the ship around even just a little bit. Politico has a story out today. And again, it's just like totally bereft of any original thinking or any meaningful plans here. The headline is Biden world wants to make the midterms more about Trump and hopes Elon Musk will help. I cannot imagine a more out of touch plan if that's actually their game plan to try to get Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter to get that to be relevant and somehow tie that to Trump and make this what a referendum on Donald Trump in an election where Joe Biden is president and the Democrats control Congress. I mean, it, it seems almost comically desperate. Well, they don't have much, do they? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that the, the jobs are coming back and the unemployment rate is low is canceled to a great extent by the fact that nobody feels good about it because inflation. So the economy, which which is an issue under more normal circumstances, might be helping the Democrats, is not helping them. In fact, it's the contrary. And so you look around for an issue where they're, you know, where they're doing well. Um, you know, you might look at the situation that we seem to, you know, our ally Ukraine seems to be holding off Russia pretty well, and you know, no one can predict the outcome there. I think people are, are more worried about it than they are anything else. And so that's not an issue that, that that seems to be helping the Democrats. So there's not much out there. So they're hoping that January 6th and it's reminders of Trump's behavior after the election and anything else they can that, that they can grab onto to make people think to make Donald Trump the issue will help them. And maybe it will. Um, but but there we are. And, you know, the, the more important question probably is, you know, how much a difference Donald Trump will make on the Republican side in these upcoming primaries. Yeah, which I want to get to here in just a second. And you know, look, it is possible that the Democrats can run on Trump opposition 24 seven for weeks leading up to the fall. And maybe they can in certain districts play up, uh, you know, the issue of abortion because the Supreme Court has a big ruling coming down in a number of weeks on that. Maybe they can mitigate some of their losses in certain places. But I'm I'm just skeptical because we saw that playbook deployed in Virginia, Trump and abortion over and over and over again against Glenn Youngkin, who then won the election. So I just I can't imagine what political strategist worth his or her salt 
looks at what happened a year ago, or not even a year ago, in Virginia, how badly this particular playbook fared for the Democrat there, Terry McAuliffe, and said, you know what, let's just try that nationally. Uh, it, it seems like malpractice. Tying Glenn Youngkin in Virginia to Trump didn't work. Uh, abortion didn't work either, but that could change, Guy. If the Supreme Court blows up Roe versus Wade and declares that abortion is not a constitutional right, that would be an animating factor among a lot of Democratic voters and a lot of people, you know, and among that subset of Republican uh, voters who who think that the party's on the wrong track on abortion. So that's that's a wild card that has to be watched. But beyond that, I don't, you know, I don't see um, much that can help the Democrats between now and the fall. Yeah, because one, I mean, it would also another possibility. Sure, Republicans could nominate a set of Lulu candidates. That are simply not electable. Yeah, and, and that could happen that, in some races. Yep, that, uh, that, that is some races that could happen, particularly those Senate races. Points on the field is something that we saw in 2010, and even in big Republican years where bad nominees uh, allowed the Democrats to at least limit some of their losses, uh, that could very well play out. We'll see who gets nominated in what races, and of course, the abortion issue is heavily animating on both sides, and it is a wild card. I think you're absolutely right to describe it that way. You made reference to President Trump, the former president, and his influence within the party. There is a lot of attention focused on the state of Ohio tomorrow. They have their primaries tomorrow, and that Senate primary on the Republican side has been something of a bleep show, is what I would call it. It's been a mess Uh, President Trump finally weighed in recently. He endorsed J.D. Vance in that race, which may have scrambled the contours of that race. The polls have turned around a little bit, and it seems like some of the people who were lagging are now surging, and Vance is ahead at least in one poll. That full interview with Brett Hume is available in its entirety, along with the entire show as well, every single day from start to finish, on demand, no charge to you, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, an interesting weekend here in Southern California. I have not bumped into a vacationing cookie just yet. I'll give you a quick update when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch Monday edition here on the Guy Benson Show. Major, major thanks to the Salem Broadcast Company, which is actually my employer over on the townhall.com side, but Salem has a huge radio company with a massive presence and affiliates all over the place. My mentor and friend Hugh Hewitt is a Salem guy, and I've been broadcasting from their headquarters here in Camarillo. They've been incredibly welcoming and accommodating. And so thank you to Salem Media for hosting me today. It's cool to be at headquarters of the company. I've actually worked for Salem for my entire career, starting in 2008. On the radio side for a while, then on the online side, so townhall.com. So it was great to catch up with some old friends, including someone who now runs the company as CEO. And uh, just here in one of their studios today, it's been a cool experience. Back in L.A. for tomorrow's show, I'm joining Shannon Bream on TV tonight, sometime in the midnight hour Eastern time, so in the 9 p.m. hour out here Pacific time. So check your listings for that, maybe set your DVR. 
And uh, we'll see if the news cycle changes. Maybe I'll get bumped, but I'm scheduled to be on Fox News at night this evening. Well, the weekend here in Southern California was great. This is the thing about Southern California. I don't come here very often, maybe every few years. And when I get here, I'm reminded why a lot of people do want to live in Southern California, in the state of California, despite all the political problems and other issues like crime, et cetera, the weather is really just great for the most part. The traffic, however, is not. So there are trade-offs anywhere you want to live, and there are some big trade-offs, I would say, down here. But we had a great weekend. On Saturday, we were heading from my aunt and uncle's house, which is where we stayed for a couple nights. It was great to see them, to our hotel in Beverly Hills. So I had a speaking engagement last night, put us up in a nice hotel type of place I would never be able to stay myself or afford. And they had a great rooftop pool, so we hung out there a little bit. On Saturday, we went out for dinner. And a buddy of ours, Michael, and thanks to him, he's super connected in L.A. He knows everyone. So he said, let me see if I can get you a reservation a few places. And he worked his magic and voila. We started the evening, had a little bit of sushi at a great place, and then we walked to West Hollywood, got a drink at this sort of cute little trendy bar and restaurant, and then we got a reservation at Craig's in West Hollywood, which is apparently a big hot spot, and people go there to be seen and to see stars and that sort of thing. It is definitely a vibe at Craig's. It is a whole scene, and it was packed. And everyone, this is a very L.A. thing. Everyone's like, ooh, how did you get a reservation at Craig's? Like, oh, just my friend got it. And apparently this is a very impressive feat that he pulled off. Because I think I texted him on Thursday, and he got us in at peak dinner time on Saturday at Craig's, and people were all ooing and eyeing about that. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, that, that's just not really the type of thing that matters that much to me. The food was good. We had chicken parm. Apparently, one of the things that you should get when you're there, we split the chicken parm, had a little salad. It was nice. And two tables down from us, and I guess this is sort of the appeal of Craig's, Russell Wilson was hanging out with two guys and having his dinner. And that that's a pretty big name. And at one point, he got up to leave, and he walked out the front door, and there was just an explosion of flashbulbs. So I guess the paparazzi just sort of parks itself right outside the restaurant. And as people come and go, I guess prominent folks eat at Craig's. And so Russell Wilson was photographed several times, it would seem, on Saturday night. You know, there weren't so many light bulb flashes for me when we left dinner. Maybe I just missed it. Maybe I was just feeling good from the wine and I just uh, ignored all of the catcalls from the paparazzi. Or maybe they just aren't, you know, Fox viewers. They don't recognize me from Gutfeld or whatever. <laughs> so it was a very uh, L.A. experience, I would say. It was, it was kind of fun. The weather was lovely. We walked. Apparently this is a safe area where you can walk even in the evening. Unlike an increasing footprint in Southern California, which is sad. Actually, on Friday afternoon, we were driving down to Redondo Beach with my uncle And there were people sort of near this town square holding signs, pushing for the recall of the district attorney in Los Angeles County. Gascon is his name. He's one of these basically pro-crime 
DAs. And it's gotten really bad here. So there's an upcoming recall, as we mentioned at the top of the show, in San Francisco. Gascon, as we talked about also, he might be next. Because there's a lot of people who are displeased with what's going on. And it's not just right-wing Republicans. And there are a fair number of conservatives out here. They're outnumbered. But it's still such a huge state. There are millions and millions of conservatives in the state of California. And my Uber driver this morning actually coming to Camarillo from L.A., he was sort of catching some of my phone call that I had planning the show with Wyatt and Dan because Christine's on vacation. More on that in a second. And he was like, oh, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but started asking me some questions. And he's like a Fox Nation subscriber. He's a conservative guy. He's like, look, I'm out here because of my wife's job. I don't like the politics, but there's a lot of us out here. So don't write us off completely. And I think that's fair. Can you imagine the frustration you must feel to be a California conservative just year after year of getting beaten down by the government here? That isn't just bad. They are actively punitive. Like the government of California hates you if you're a conservative, especially if you're successful. And they don't really make much of a secret of trying to kind of punish you and let it be known through their government policies that you're not really terribly welcome here. Kind of persona non grata. Now, we'll take your taxes, of course. Thank you very much. Give us that money. But we don't really like you. That's the, that's the sense that I get, that conservatives have to deal with day in, day out in the state of California. Where the voters just decided, what, a few months ago? Yes, Gavin Newsom. Let's get more of that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. But we salute you. Like, keep the faith out here. Now, last evening, the whole purpose of this trip is there is a wonderful woman named Tammy who hosts these occasional dinners in her private residence, like salon dinners, where they have beautiful catering and wine and all this stuff and you mingle and then there's a guest speaker who speaks for about half an hour then there's Q&A and there's dessert and coffee and, and that's the evening it's typically on Sundays and I was very blessed and honored to be the speaker last night I'd actually done one of these before at her home eight years ago I can't believe it's been eight years so we talked about my border trip. I gave them some insights there. We talked about the upcoming midterm elections. It was an absolute blast. Adam came along as well. They could not have been any nicer. So thank you, Tammy, for that experience and just the house guests. There were probably 30 people there, an intimate experience. It was really fun. And they had this huge welcome sign. I posted it on my Instagram story, at Guy P. Benson, like this big cutout of Ronald Reagan and my name. This is cool. They had a whole bed of roses that were red, white, and blue, and they formed an American flag. I mean, it was elaborate. So that's why I'm out here, and that was really a lot of fun. I've been trying to stay kind of on East Coast time, succeeding only partially, I would say. And because of the time difference, I'm a little bit groggy and therefore not quite as sharp as I typically would be, but I'm still on high alert, looking over my shoulder at all times. For one, producer Christine, who is on vacation this week, coincidentally, out here in Southern California. And she's been threatening to basically track me down and join, whether I want it or not, my social gatherings. And so far, no sign of cookie. But knowing her, 
mean, she could be waiting for me outside. Like, my nightmare is I'm going to hop in an Uber. And it's going to be a familiar voice from the front. Where to? And he'll turn around with that smile of hers. Be producer Christine, and she'll lock the doors, and it'll be childproof. Like the child locked in the back, and I'll be just stuck wherever she's going to take me. So I have, like, a, a secret code that I will text Wyatt if I'm in trouble, if Christine finds me here in Southern California. It's a very big place, but she is relentless. She's very crafty. She's resourceful. So we'll keep you posted. I'm here for a couple more days. Tonight with Shannon Bream, Fox News at night, midnight hour on Fox News Channel, a bit earlier out here. That's the advantage of Pacific time. Back here tomorrow from L.A. on The Guy Benson Show, same time, same place as always. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful evening. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.